God is good. All the time. It's good to worship with you today. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, may we walk worthy of you because you alone are worthy as the lamb who was slain, who rose again on the third day, who sits at the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for us, God, help us today in view of your great worth to give you your worship by walking worthy of our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I've been looking forward to this day as we uh, begin to think together about marriage. Not just one sermon racing through Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, but, but three sermons on what I would call not symbiotic marriage. You know that word, which means to share life, but The Greek in the Bible has two words for life. One is bios, biological life. The other is zoe, the life of God, eternal life. So if I could, I would call it synzoetic marriage, a marriage that shares eternal life. And it hit me sometime this week that Melanie and I have been married for 26 years and we've been at Tallawood almost 13 years. So at some point in the next year or year and three months... Melanie and I will have spent over half of our marriage at this place. Now, understand, 26 years in this community is um, not much more than to qualify us as rank amateurs because we have in this, and I love this multi-generational worship, by the way. One of the things we hoped for was that we would have all generations together in one room, and in this service we have that, and I am so grateful for that. But in this room this morning, uh, we have uh, a couple, Tom and Lucille Harrison, who December 25th of last year, just a few weeks ago, celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. Would you just kind of wave at us, Tom and Lucille? We rejoice. We are grateful. I've often said, if you want to be married 70 years, you've got to start early and uh, you got to be well for a long, long time. And uh, so we rejoice. Tom was a pastor here in the state and uh, one of a great host of uh, ministers who I preach to every week. And I thank God for them. So did you see Time Magazine's article on marriage in December? Some startling statistics were found there that in 1960, nearly 70% of Americans were married uh, today, now about, about half are. Back then, two-thirds of 20-somethings were married. My parents were in that group of two-thirds of 20-somethings in 1960. They were barely 20 in 1960, uh, and they had been married a couple of years at that point. Today, about 26% of people in their 20s. Here is the conclusion of that article, that Time Magazine article, if you didn't see it. What we found is that marriage, whatever its social, spiritual, or symbolic appeal, is in purely practical terms just not as necessary as it used to be. Who Needs Marriage was the cover on 
the uh, title page of Time magazine that week. And I wondered, is that right? And in a larger sense, I, I asked myself this week, N.T. Wright's question, if you look around and you read what the scriptures say about marriage and you say, well, those words were written 2,000 years ago and we're not sure that Paul really liked women. We're not sure that Paul really liked people. And by the way, he wrote in the first century and we live in the 21st century. And so we've moved well beyond the council of scripture on marriage. Can I just ask N.T. Wright's question? Then if we're not going to do marriage God's way, what is our plan? And would you, as you look at the culture around us and the prevailing sentiment toward marriage, would you say that the world has mostly gotten this marriage thing right or not? And so we come today to sit under the counsel of Scripture. And I want to say to you um, as we read this, and I I realize when I read chapter 5 of Ephesians that that, uh, even reading the words can uh, cause angst and uh, and sometimes create uh, tension. And I want to say to you today that when we really understand what Paul was saying, we have nothing to fear in the words of God about marriage. So why not? Why not try marriage God's way? And even as I say that, would you open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21? Can I tell you this passage is not primarily about marriage? It's not primarily about marriage. It is about marriage, but it's not primarily about marriage. It's primarily about Christ, even more specifically about the cross. And whether or not we are married or used to be married or want to get married or don't want to get married, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this passage has to do with you. And we have to do business with this passage because as believers in Christ, we are the bride of Christ and he is the savior of his people his church let's stand together to read God's word today Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 submit to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought To love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ. And the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you. You may be seated. So, how do we practice resurrection? 
How do we put the gospel of Jesus Christ into practice? How do we, as we said last week, live spirit-filled lives? Eugene Peterson says, there is no better place in this world for you and I to put Christianity into practice than in our everyday relationships, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Christianity works. The gospel works. And if the gospel works, the best place for us to begin to see it in action is where we live our lives. And so if you and I want to practice resurrection, we must start in our relationships with people. So in this passage, Paul shows us that submission is a a key, that submission and sacrifice are essential in all of our relationships. Nobody in the first century would have been surprised that the Apostle Paul said, you wives have responsibility to your husbands, you children have responsibility to your parents, You slaves have responsibility to your masters. But the revolutionary dimension of these verses is that Paul not only says that wives have responsibility to husbands, but he must have shocked the world when he said husbands have responsibilities to their wives. Parents have responsibilities to their children. And masters, we would say employers, have responsibility to their employees. And if you and I want to know the contours of of healthy relationship with God and healthy relationship with each other, Paul's answer is the cross. When he wants to tell husbands and wives how to relate to each other, he goes cross-country as quickly as he can to the cross. And I am not exercising hyperbole today when I say we so little understand marriage in our world because we so little understand the cross. But if we could understand the cross, if we could understand that Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father, that Jesus sacrificed himself on behalf of the church, then we would know what it means to rightly relate to each other. Christ has become our great example in love on the cross. He offered himself up for us. If you don't believe this passage is about Jesus, let me just show you in the first five verses there, when you submit to one another, he says it's out of reverence for whom? For Christ there in verse 21. In verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, he says in verse 24, husbands love your wives, how? As Christ loves the church. 14 times in 13 verses, Paul talks about Christ. And most specifically, he says, it is his love for us that caused him to offer himself up for us. It's why Karl Barth, when asked, what is the greatest theological truth you have ever known? This brilliant theologian said, Jesus loves me. This I know. It's why when a good friend wrote to Henry Nouwen and said, tell me some truth that I can live by, Henry Nouwen wrote back to him and said, this is what you must know. You are beloved. I remember as a boy watching a televangelist uh, television program. I was probably a little different than most of my friends, but I, I watched these, uh, these television shows. I loved to watch Billy Graham preach, and I, I remember another show which began every Sunday. You'll remember this with the song, I Am Loved 
I am loved. I can risk loving you. If you and I don't know how much God loves us, how in the world can we ever love each other rightly? If we don't know that we are loved, we will never be able to take the risk of loving each other. So Paul says, in love, the word is agape, in love, he offered himself up, verse 25, for the church. He offered himself up. And, and so when we go back to chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5, or the end of chapter uh, four, and we read to him when he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of each other as dearly loved children. Live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What we know is, when the Bible teaches us about forgiveness... It's not talking about some abstract concept about the way we ought to feel about humanity in general so much as it is saying, forgive your husband, forgive your wife, forgive your children, forgive your parents, forgive your employers and your employees, forgive your neighbors. Live a life of forgiveness, tender-hearted. Why would we do that? Because Christ forgave us. Marriages require two good forgivers. People who are good at forgiving each other. I read this week about one lady who was asked about the secret of her long marriage. And she said, I decided on the day that we married that I would make a list of the ten things about my husband that annoyed me the most. And whenever he offended me with those ten characteristics, I would just forgive him immediately. And her friend said, i got to see that list. She said, well, I can't remember where I put it. But every time my husband does something wrong, I say, lucky for him, that's on that list. <laughs> this is a life of practicing forgiveness. Forgiving each other. John Piper says, uh, when you first get married, you, it's like you're walking into a garden. And you see the beautiful grass and the mountain peaks in the distance and everything is beautiful. And there's an idyllic sort of pastoral kind of image of a stream running through the middle of this. And you say, this is ours to celebrate. This marriage is so beautiful and perfect. And it's not long before you discover there are cow pies in the pasture. <laughs> and what do you do with the cow pies? And before long in marriage you start thinking, it's all cow pies. Piper says, you need a shovel. <laughs> he said, he and his wife have decided to make a compost heap of all the cow pies. And one thing he said, we have decided in our marriage, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. <laughs> oh, there is great truth in that. And he said, consequently, we are always giving each other grace because we are chosen by God. Because we are holy, because we are loved, we can love each other. In love, Christ sacrificed for us on the cross. In love, Christ invites us to this table so that he can, listen to these two words, so that he can nourish us and cherish us. I see it in verse 29 where he's still talking about Jesus and he says, you don't hate your own body, but you feed and care for it just as Christ does the church. And he's saying to husbands in this context, nourish and cherish. I was thinking about when husbands and wives nourish each other. Do you remember that, that strange moment in the wedding ceremony? Well, it's actually in the reception where the, the couple cuts the cake and then sort of 
smear it on each other's faces. Maybe you didn't do that. Melanie and I were so nice. We didn't do that. We just took little bites of cake and gave them to each other. But we've been to weddings that were almost embarrassing in that regard. And I just want to say about that, that I studied that tradition this week, and it turns out that it's actually better than it used to be. It used to be that as a a symbol of fertility in the old Roman culture, they would bake a cake and they would throw it at the bride. So it's actually better today than it was then. Some things do get better with time. And the husband is to nourish his wife. But here's the point. Christ nourishes the church. And how does Christ nourish the church? Well, he was always feeding people, wasn't he? He was transforming fish and loaves and feeding 5,000 and then 4,000. He was always feeding. And on the last night of his life, he took bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood, which is for you. Christ nourishes the church and good marriages are marriages in which husband and wife not just at the wedding reception but later on when it really counts feed each other's souls I walked into um, a care unit to see my friend Bud and his wife Imogene Hudgens just a, a few weeks ago they too had been married 70 years And I walked in that room and it was a sacred moment when I stopped at the door and watched him as he took a spoon and fed his wife who has Alzheimer's and fed her and cared for her. He had this idea, he said, if I can strengthen her, if she will eat again, I can take her home again. He said, Pastor, we shouldn't complain. All our lives for 70 years we've been saying to God, give us health so that we can take care of each other and so that we can be active in your kingdom and God has answered our prayer. How are we going to complain now, he said. How would it be a burden to us? No, let me tell you something. Christ intends for us to nourish each other. And when that word says care there, that's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. Some translations say cherish. It's here. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, when Paul says to that church, like a mother cared for her children. You know what the word is? It means to warm. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we learn it's better to have two than one. Especially in our cold weather recently, it's better to have two than one. Even Casey, our daughter, recognized recently on one of those cold nights, she said, you two are so lucky You get to keep each other warm. I have nobody. And beyond that, she said, you have an electric blanket, and I don't. (laughs) Well, we are lucky. And we are to warm each other and to care for each other. And this is the work of marriage and ministry and life together. We, We not only nourish each other, but we cherish each other. And the way that God cherishes us is that in Our spiritual coldness, Revelation chapter 3, church at Laodicea. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. I wish you were something, but you're so lukewarm. Who will warm our souls? Swindoll talks about the beautiful fireplace and the oak beam above it. And engraved in the beam, it says, if your heart is cold, my fire cannot warm it. It takes more than a fireplace to keep our hearts blazing for Christ. We nourish each other we cherish each other and care for each other spiritually and rekindle the spiritual fire within each other it's part of being part of the bride of Christ that we care for each other's souls we nourish each other but we cherish each other and he says how do we do this 
Well, it's by remembering. In fact, um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel has said, most of the Bible can be summarized in a single word, remember. (laughs) So this morning, I want us to remember that Christ cherished us on the cross and He nourishes us at this table. And I remember my friend Bud telling me about a necklace that he bought for his wife, Imogene, on their 70th anniversary. She passed away shortly after I saw her there in that facility. And on the day of her funeral over here in our chapel, I, I walked in and I walked to the front because I wanted to see that necklace. And then I asked Bud, tell me again what that's about. The necklace was the image of a cross. There were two stones on the cross beam and one at the bottom. I said, what does that mean? He said, the two stones on the beam of the cross are our birthstones as a reminder to us that we were born into the cross. And the one at the base is a reminder that it's the cross that has sustained our marriage for seven decades. And my word to you this morning is come to the cross and receive the life of God. With this bread, He feeds our soul. With this cup, He nourishes us to spiritual life. If you want to know the secret to marriage, the key to marriage, it's shaped exactly like a cross. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the cross. Help us to remember today as we eat this bread, as we drink this cup, the cross of Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen.